Daniel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, it says, Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of a thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosed and his knees knocked against each other. I like the old King James where it says, and his knees smote one against the other. In verse 7, it says, The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now all the king's wise men came, but they couldn't read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. Now, even though we're not going to talk about it tonight, I'm going to read just a little bit further for context. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians and astrologers and Chaldeans and soothsayers. We're going to stop and we're going to do the rest of the chapter the next time that we meet. For centuries... We've used the expression, the handwriting is on the wall. And it comes from this chapter in the book of Daniel. And that expression, hey, look, the handwriting is on the wall. It's a, it's a figure of speech that has come down in our own vernacular to mean, guess what? Judgment is inevitable. When we say that the handwriting on the wall it's the same expression that my granny used to say, that the chickens have come home to roost. In this section of the book of Daniel, we're challenged to consider the warning signs of impending judgment and the consequences of sin. You've heard me say this repeatedly, that grace precedes judgment. Grace is real, but so is judgment. Remember in the New Testament, there's a reoccurring theme. It is, God is not mocked. What a person sows, 
that also they will reap. What happens to a willful king who deliberately defies God? Well, the short answer, his kingdom will crumble. And there's something inside of us that wants to be king or queen. There's something inside of us that wants to be the Lord of our circumstances. There is always a competition. Who will be the king of your life? Who will have control of your life? I like Wilmington's outline of this chapter. They talk about the gall in verses 2 through 4. The wall in verses 5 and 6. The call in verses 7 through 24. The scrawl, that's verses 24 through 29. The fall, verses 30 and 31. So tonight we're going to look at the gall and the wall and the call. Several years have gone by. Again, if you're just joining us or if you've been with us in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 4, you'll remember what happens in the chapter It's the story of, remember, the vision and the humbling of King Nebuchadnezzar. You see, Daniel is a book that isn't written with an emphasis on chronology. As a matter of fact, the emphasis is on spiritual warfare, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men. From chapter 4 to chapter 5, some... 20 or 30 years have gone by. Daniel is an old man. He's in his late 80s. He's possibly in his early 90s. Nebuchadnezzar has long been dead. The head of gold is soon going to be replaced with the chest and arms of silver. And so a huge period of time has taken place between chapter 4 and chapter 5. It says in verse 1, concerning the Feast of Belshazzar, Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. This chapter 5 and this verse caused no end of problems to scholars for hundreds of years. And the reason why it caused problems for scholars for hundreds of years is because we didn't have an understanding of the chronology of the kings of Babylon. We knew that Nebuchadnezzar was a king. We didn't have any record of Belshazzar as a king. And because there was no record of Belshazzar, repeated accusations were made. The Bible can't be trusted. The Bible is just a book that people made up. It's filled with a lot of interesting stories that probably aren't true. But guess what? On a recent archaeological expedition, Sir Herbert Rawlinson discovered a series of cylinders. These were writings that took place that confirmed that that Daniel chapter 5 was, in fact, true. As a matter of fact, a cylinder was discovered with a brief record of the taking of Babylon by the Medes and the Persians in the year 538 B.C. And then the record showed that it took place in the month of Tammuz, which is in the modern calendar, June, that the troops of Cyrus defeated King Nabonidus in the open country and then entered Babylon without a battle. The Greeks, the, um, the Greek scholars told of, of the fact that they, that they dammed up the Euphrates River, that it dried up, and that the 
that the, that the Persians literally went into to the city of, of Babylon and captured it without a battle. And for hundreds of years, people suspected that the book of Daniel may or may not be true. But again, here's what we've discovered over and over again with archaeology and, and uh, with, with the scientist's spade. Do you realize that no archaeological discovery has ever undermined the authenticity of the Bible? Now, Belshazzar was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had one single son. His name was Amel Marduk, or he's called Evil Merodach. In 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 27. In Jeremiah chapter 52, verse 31. He succeeded Nebuchadnezzar in 562 B.C. He was murdered by his brother-in-law, that is, Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law. There was a man named Nergal Shadaretzar, or Nebuchadnezzar. And he's mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 39, verse 3. Shadaretzar died in battle. And then he was succeeded by his youngest son, a man named Labshi Marduk, in 556 B.C. This boy was murdered shortly thereafter by Nabonidus. Nabonidus married one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters. Belshazzar was born from that union. And so, like I said, some 20 to 30 years have gone by between chapter 4 and chapter 5. Nabonidus, for some reason, chose not to make his capital Babylon. We don't know why. History speculates that he moved to the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. He ruled from 556 to 539 B.C., some 17 years. He lived in a place called Tema, which, again, is near the modern cities in Saudi Arabia of Mecca and Medina. Belshazzar was the co-regent with his father. This fact becomes important later on in the chapter because when Belshazzar asks Daniel to read the writing on the wall, you'll remember that he makes him the offer to make him the third in the kingdom. Now, you'll remember earlier in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he was made second in the kingdom. Or just like in the Old Testament books of Moses, where Joseph interpreted the dream and he was made second to Pharaoh. Again, scholars long speculated, why is it possible that he made him the third? And because, again, because he was a co-regent with his father. And again, scholars have, have balked because Nebuchadnezzar is called Belshazzar's father. And Belshazzar is called a son. And again, the answer is very simple. In both the Hebrew and the Chaldean language, there is no term for grandfather. In other words, your father, your grandfather, and your great-grandfather in that culture and society are called father. You'll remember that Abraham is called the father of the Jews. And so history reveals that Belshazzar was a wicked, arrogant self-indulgent ruler. He was born into a position of wealth and, and privilege. And he was a drunk. He was what you and I would call in the vernacular a party animal. And I think that there's a reason why we use that expression. In our culture and society, many people believe that human beings are evolved animals. 
And so sometimes they'll give themselves permission to act like animals. And so he was a drunk, but he was also sexually immoral. Now Daniel was removed from the court at the death of evil Merodach, and he's been absent from the court for well over a decade. But once again, the old man is going to take center stage in the drama that's taking place in Babylon. Now, Belshazzar throws a party for a thousand of his so-called closest friends. You have to understand something, that in that culture, getting drunk was an act of worship. Ancient Babylons would throw a party and they would get drunk. They would celebrate anything and they would celebrate everything. By the way, does that sound familiar? And that's exactly what's happening here. Are there appropriate times to celebrate? Yeah. But for Belshazzar, he's throwing a party a few moments before disaster strikes. Like the Titanic, he's about to hit an iceberg that's going to sink his ship. Belshazzar doesn't know it, but as we're reading this passage, within 24 hours... He's going to be dead. I know that some of you have experienced the loss of a loved one. Some of you, it's been recent. Some of you, it's not been recent. And some of you realize something, that for some people, there's a morning that they wake up and it's the last morning that they're going to live. It's the last morning that they're going to do whatever it is that they do. It's the last evening that they're going to go to sleep. And for Nebuchadnezzar, the handwriting isn't just metaphorically on the wall. It's really on the wall. When I stop and I think about that, it it reminds me of our culture and society that finds incredible ways to anesthetize itself. Alcohol is a curse in our culture. Do you realize that more people die from alcohol-related deaths than any other kind of accident or injury? Some of you have had the sad circumstance where you've watched your mother beaten by a drunken spouse. Some of you have had to visit a hospital and you've seen the drunk in the last hours of their life. Some of you have had the unpleasant circumstance to watch a mother and her daughter sobbing as a doctor tries to find a vein, but all of them are collapsed because this person has abused alcohol for most of their life. Some of you have been in funeral homes with the parents of a child who've been killed by a drunk driver. Alcohol sales in America are well over $30 billion a year. You know what? I read recently that there was a party in Los Angeles to raise money to help fight drug addiction. Isn't that ironic? You have a party to raise awareness and money for drug addiction, and at the party, everybody gets drunk. According to some officials, 1 in 15 people in America are addicted to cocaine and heroin. Drug and alcohol abuse are in part attempts to make the pain go away. It's to make the emptiness of life go away. 
No wonder the Bible says wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging and whosoever is deceived is not wise. In Proverbs chapter 23, it has a long list that says who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Where did this come from? It could have been written today. Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look at the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart will utter perverse things. Isn't that true? Oh, that's the alcohol talking. That's the wine talking. The ancients had a saying in vino veritas. Ooh. Yeah, when you drink the wine, you speak the truth. Yeah, the truth of the perversity of the human heart. And then it says, yes, you will be like one who lies in the midst of the sea or like one who lies on the top of a mast saying, they they have struck me, but I don't feel a thing. They've beaten me, but it doesn't matter. When shall I awake that I can have another drink? I know, some of you know that this is their life verse in the Bible. Oh, I think I found your life verse in the book of Proverbs. But what you have to understand is the gall of what was happening. You see, in verse 2, when it says, While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and the lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Look at that expression, while he tasted the wine. When Belshazzar drank the wine, it gave him false courage as he was surrounded by both friends and enemies in what he considered an impenetrable fortress. You have to understand something. At this point, Babylon is under siege by the Medes and the Persians. Wilmington refers to Belshazzar as a drunk, depraved, demon-possessed individual. I don't know about that, but he was definitely ripped. He's definitely sauced. And he's, he's got this idea. Now, you have to understand something. In this particular culture and society, it was inappropriate for a king to drink with his lords. As a matter of fact, getting drunk and idolatry certainly went hand in hand in the ancient world, but there were certain activities that kings were never supposed to be involved in. And so what is happening is Belshazzar is supposed to be ruling the country with sanity and propriety. But he isn't. He's pushing the envelope. Not only is he pushing the envelope, but he's having a kind of a drinking contest with a thousand of his close buddies. Now, if you've ever been in a drinking contest with one of your closest buddies or two of your closest drinking buddies, if you're having a drinking contest with a thousand of your closest buddies, here's the deal. It truly is a drink-off that's happening. 
And Belshazzar is trying to prove his manhood by drinking everyone under the table. But he's going to do something else. He's, this false courage is going to cause him to do something else. It's going, to cross, it's going to cause him to cross a line. A line of impropriety. You see, he's not willing to just simply get drunk. But he wants to blaspheme the living God. The God who is in heaven. And he wants to do it by adding insult and injury to the Jews. Look at verse 3. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his, his concubines drank from them. Now think about it. I don't know if you've ever been drunk. But if you ever have been drunk, drunks come up with some pretty stupid ideas. Drunks can come up with sensual ideas. Sacrilegious ideas. Stupid ideas. And here's the king's. Hey, I got a great idea. Hey, all of those sacred objects that my father took from the Jews. Let's drink out of them. In other words, you understand what he's doing? He wants to not simply dishonor God. He wants to blaspheme God. And by the way. Do you think it's ever a good idea to mock God? i got to tell you something. When you're drunk, it seems like a good idea. Well, if there's really a God. Isn't it funny how theologically oriented you get when you're in an altered state of consciousness? I believe that there's, if there's a God, he, he's going to be really happy that uh, I'm in this altered state of consciousness. No, that's really not true. As a matter of fact, in 1 Kings chapter 7, verses 48 through 51, we learn where these sacred objects that he brings to the party. In 1 Kings 7, 48, it says, Thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord, the altar of gold, the table of gold on which was the showbread, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the right side, five on the left, and front of the inner sanctuary with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold. First Kings 7.50, the basins, the trimmers, the bowls, the ladles, the censures of pure gold, the hinges of gold, both for the doors of the inner room and for the doors of the main hall of the temple. First Kings 7.51, so all the work of King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in the, the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver, the gold, the furnishings. He put them in the treasury of the house of the Lord. These were sacred objects. And they were supposed to have a sacred use. But guess what? That is an invitation to judgment. When you, in your altered state of consciousness, decide to use that which is designated sacred and you want to use it for that which is sensual or sacrilegious, it is an invitation to judgment. And look at verse 4. They drank wine. They praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Getting drunk and idolatry go hand in hand. 
they always have. There were drunken worship services in the Greek world. They called it Bacchanalia. There was a god, his name was Bacchus, and he was the god of wine. And in that culture and society, the way that you worship God was to drink as much wine as you possibly could and enter into an altered state of consciousness and commune with the gods. In the Roman world, that's exactly how you would worship in, in part. In Japan, there are more idols than there are Japanese people. In India, there are an excess of 300 million gods and goddesses. Why am I bringing all of this up? Because human beings are incurably religious. We worship. We have this emptiness inside of us. We long and desire to worship. But remember, this is no ordinary party. The Greek historian Xenophon writes that a solemn festival was made to honor the Babylonian deity Bel. And by the way, archaeologists have discovered this great hall where the party was held. You can actually go to the archaeological sites to this very day. The hall was 60 feet wide. The hall was 172 feet long. Now think about it. In a hallway that's 60 feet wide and 172 feet long, they've piled in over a thousand party goers. The walls were decorated in stucco. And if you, even to this day, there are fragments of the stucco at left that, that memorialize the accomplishments of the Babylonian Empire. Belshazzar led the toast to the pagan gods. And again, in Babylonian culture, this was unheard of. It was beneath the dignity of a king to toast with lords and ladies. It was a total lack of dignity. It was a total lack of self-control. Imagine a president of the United States goes to see you Boulder and goes, hey, let's have a kegger party. Oh, I brought the kegger. Now, does it make sense to you that a president of the United States would go to a kegger party at a frat house? I know some of you are going, that sounds really cool. Well, again, it wasn't really cool. What it indicated was that leadership had declined to the point of unintelligibility. Belshazzar also invited women to the party. Now, again, some of you might be thinking, that makes sense. But it doesn't make sense in Babylonian culture, and this is why. For those of you who are familiar with the Bible, remember there's a book in the Bible called the Book of Esther. And some of you are familiar with the story of Esther and, and Ahazuerus, or Ahazerus, that he was having a party. In, in the book of Esther, in chapter 1, Queen Vashti, the queen, entertained the women separately. And there was a reason why the women were entertained separately. Because when you combine alcohol... And men and women, it's a recipe for disaster. And that's exactly the way it was in the ancient world. And that's exactly the way it is in the modern world. Here's part of the point. The restrictions and the prohibitions are being lifted. There aren't, there's not only no rules, but now the king and his guests begin to drink each other under the table. And they're combining sexual liberty with a drunken orgy. The feast was sensual. 
The feast was sexual. The feast was sacrilegious. And so when Belshazzar commands that the sacred vessels that were taken from Solomon's temple be brought to toast the pagan gods, I want you to think of it for a moment. When leaders lead sensually and sexually and sacrilegiously, you know that this is an invitation to judgment. This is a way of saying, hey, God, uh, when is the curtain going to go up? And that's exactly what's happening. Rest assured that judgment is coming and a kingdom is collapsing. Now, what in the world would cause a person to use sacred objects for sensual purposes? I'm going to give you a couple of suggestions, okay? And I think that one of the reasons might be because in a world where anything goes, what will happen? Anything. When you lift the restriction, if there are no rules, guess what you do? You give yourself permission to do whatever it is that you want to do. And that's what's happening. The borders are open. The restrictions are lifted. And this is what's interesting to me. The city is surrounded. But Belshazzar is living in what seems like an impregnable fortress. A castle that cannot be breached. We know from other writings that he had in storage food that would last for 20 years. He has a sense of invulnerability and a sense of invincibility. And isn't that exactly what happens when people live their lives and their thoughts apart from God? Nothing bad is going to happen. There's nothing that could possibly go wrong. One Bible commentator put it this way, quote, Shortly, the slave arrived with the holy vessels at the raucous banquet room. The moment had arrived for this maggot of a man to do a God-defying act. The erotic dancing suddenly stopped. The musicians put down their instruments. The house lights were turned up. Belshazzar took the goblet, filled it with his own private stash, and smirking with arrogance, slopped the crimson liquid to his lips. It dribbles down his beard. He glares around with, there, I've done it. And a thousand people gasped. And suddenly a cheer broke out, blasphemously applauding the daring act. In other words, in their drunken wickedness, nothing mattered. Nothing was sacred. Nothing was honorable. Nothing was valuable. I'm trying to, I was trying to think of, a, of an illustration that would make sense to you. Imagine a thousand altar boys descend on the Vatican and they break open the altar wine and the communion hosts and then they get involved in a drunken, debauched orgy. You'd go, that's altar wine. That's communion elements. You don't do that. That's exactly right. In his book, Voices from Babylon, Dr. Seiss writes, quote, Not only their ill-timed merriment, their trampling on customary propriety, their drunkenness, but even their foolhardy and blasphemous insult to the Most High God is veiled over and cloaked with a pretense of devotion. This was as far as it was possible for human daring to go. It was more than heaven 
could endure, unquote. Do you know what's happening? In that sensual, sexual, sacrilegious act, there's really a defiance that's taking place. And here's how the defiance goes. So, what are you going to do about it? Now, by the way, if you saw your child mock God, or even you, please stop doing that. And your child, you say to your child, please stop doing that. And they, they go like this. What are you going to do? Yeah, you laugh because you go, ah, this is an invitation to judgment, isn't it? Oh, wow. You're asking me to pull out the stops. You're wondering whether or not you're going to get away with this. The feast was sensual and sexual and sacrilegious, but it, it was also stupid. There's a proverb in the ancient world. Whom the gods would destroy, they first make mad. And here's what's happening. Belshazzar is partying. But you know what he doesn't understand? You know what's happening in his inebriated brain, in his drunken stupor? He's celebrating, but he has no idea. He has no idea. He has zero idea that he's celebrating his own funeral. Isn't that an odd thought? He's celebrating his own funeral. He just doesn't know it. And that becomes a type and a picture of the people living in our world, doesn't it? Hey, look, eat, drink, and be merry, man, because tomorrow you're going to die. Oh, let's do this. Let's do that. What's interesting, a careful reading of the Scripture should have discovered that everything that's happening in this chapter, and particularly at this time, is prophesied in God's Word. Jeremiah warned that a northern kingdom would conquer the Babylonians in Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 1 through 3 and verse 9. The nation would be associated with the Medes. That's Jeremiah 51, 11 and verse 58. Babylon is described as being inside of a fortification. That's Jeremiah 51, 53. Babylon would be taken by a trick or a snare. That's Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 24. The city's demise would take place with the drying up of water. That's Jeremiah 51.36. It would be accomplished while a great feast was in progress. That's Jeremiah 51.39. It would happen when Nebuchadnezzar's grandson was in power. This was prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 27, verses 6 and 7. You know why I'm bringing all of this up? Because if you read the Bible and you read what the Bible has to say, not just simply about the past, not just simply about the coming of Jesus, not just simply about the second coming of Jesus. But if you really, truly read the Bible and you ask yourself this question, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to me. Do you realize that the Bible has a lot to say about you? About your life? And how you're going to live your life? And how you're going to interact in your life with your husband, with your wife, with your family, with your friends, on the job, and your circumstances? And what it means to know God or not know God? What it means to walk with God or not walk with God? And then the Bible unfolds itself to you and it begins to tell you what will happen to you if you walk with God and know God and love God and have a right relationship with God? 
And what will happen if you don't? Cyrus the Persian is literally at the gates. Cyrus knew that he couldn't outweigh the Babylonians because they have 20 years worth of food. So he cleverly diverts the water flow that goes into the city. He literally walks under the city gates on the dry riverbed and into, as the Babylonians are fond of saying, the mother of all parties. And the writing on the wall, look at verse 5. In the same hour, the fingers of a man had appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Do you understand what's happening? God is crashing Belshazzar's little drunken orgy. Yeah, nothing's going to happen to us. We're fine. We're going to... People are pounding at the, at the door, but nothing is going to happen. And all of a sudden, supernaturally, a hand penetrates time and space and begins to write on the wall, even though the guests don't know it. Like I said, the Medes and the Persians are at that very moment going into the city unnoticed. And he sees the writing on the wall. By the way, this is the same hand that scratched the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone that were given to Moses. This is the same finger that drew in the dirt in John chapter 8 in defense of a woman who was taken in, in adultery. This is the finger that spells doom and judgment for Belshazzar. And I'm going to suggest something to you. There's no warning. There's no thunder. There's no lightning. And it's the way real life is. When does judgment happen? When you most expect it? Or when you least expect it? That's exactly right. And look at verse 6. Then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosed and his knees knocked against each other. I love that. There's four things. What happens to the profane king? Number one, his countenance changes. Number two, his thoughts trouble him. Number three, the joints of his loins are loose. His knees smote one against another. Despair sweeps over him. Now think about it. You go from party animal, drinking your friends and family underneath the table to sheer terror. Absolute fear. Despair sweeps over the king. The drunken despot all of a sudden begins to think about death, damnation, doom. And his knees start knocking one against the other. And Now, let's just paint a picture here. He's terrified. And wouldn't you be? Can you imagine in a fit of rebellion and disobedience, you ignore God, you defy God, you mock God, and then all of a sudden, God shows up. We're told that the king's countenance changed. Have you ever seen a drunk with a silly smile? And then all of a sudden, terror, sheer stark terror gone is the silly smile 
Gone is the impudent smirk. Gone is the sense of invincibility. Gone is the sense I can do whatever I want. I, you know, when I was preparing the study, you know who I thought of? Bill Maher. Bill Maher, the self-styled champion who, who says concerning people who actually believe the Bible, they believe in talking snakes. Oh, guess what else they believe? They also believe in talking donkeys. You don't believe the Bible, do you, Bill? No. Bill, you don't believe that the Bible is a revelation of God. No. You don't believe that there's a God who loves you and cares about you. You don't believe that there's a Jesus who died on the cross and who rose from the dead. But guess what? One day his show is going to be canceled. And one day he's going to stand before a true and living God. The king's face is terrible. Filled with terror. His back buckles. His knees shake. His heart is filled with fear. And in one brief moment, in one brief moment, the selfish, impudent, arrogant king becomes an emotional puddle of fear, shivering and shaking, helpless and mortal, fragile and perishable. And if ever there was a time to get serious, if you were never ever afraid ever before that was a good time and I want you to again as you're reading the passage unknown to the king he is less than 24 hours from the grave and from hell the measure of his days are over the cup of iniquity is full his doom is fixed And guess what? Each and every person is going to come to that final moment, to that final day, when the last party and the last drink and the last smug, arrogant statement is gone, and now it's judgment. And that's the call. Look what it says in verse 7. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. Does this sound familiar to you? Have we heard about the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers before? The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, I've already explained why he'll be the third ruler. Because his father is outside of the city. He has yet to be captured. And he can't give him the job of number two because he has the job of number two. And so it says the king cried aloud. He cries. The the expression is he's screaming. And the reason why he's screaming is because he's freaked out. He has experienced the warning of Proverbs chapter 1, verse 24. Because I called you and you refused. Because I stretched out my hand and no one regarded. Because you disdained all my counsel and you would have none of my rebuke. I'm going to laugh at your calamity. I'm going to mock when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm and your destruction like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then you're going to call on me. But I'm not going to answer you. You're going to seek me diligently but you won't be able to find me because they hated knowledge. They didn't choose to fear the Lord. They would have none of my counsel. They despised my every rebuke. Okay, okay, I'm ready to have that talk, God. I'm, I'm ready to have that talk. 
there will be, for at least some people, no chance to have that little talk. If Belshazzar represents anyone in the New Testament, do you remember the story in the New Testament about this guy who has his barns full and overflowing, and he says, hey, look, I've worked my whole life. I've prospered. I've, I've, I've got everything that I could possibly need. Not only do I have everything that I possibly could need, but I've even, I have self-storage sheds filled with more junk than I could possibly lose use if I live two more lifetimes. And then remember the voice says, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. I wonder if Jesus had Belshazzar in mind when he was talking about that. So he screams. People live under the illusion that there's one more day. There's one more chance. Some of you might be living under that illusion. Even as Christians, you've wandered away from God. You're not loving Him and serving Him. But you began to play games with this world and the circumstances of this world. And you're living under the illusion that, hey, I have one more day. I have one more chance. But I've got to tell you something. God is under no obligation to strive with human beings. God is the God of many chances, but woe to the person whose chances are up. Guess what? Belshazzar's chances are up. And so the king calls for the best advice available to him. He goes back to the old time religion. He calls for the astrologers and the magicians and the soothsayers. You know what's interesting to me? This is the third time in the book that the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers have been called. And each time they've been called, guess what's happened? They failed, haven't they? And when a person's living the last day of their life, when they're living the last moment of their life, when they're going to face the inevitable judgment of God, is it the astrologers and the soothsayers that people are going to call? Some people will. Some people still look to the occult. They look to the supernatural. They look to the new age for answers. I know what I'll do. I'll call Dr. Phil. I know what I'll do. I'll call Ghost Whisperer. We'll have a seance that last day so I can... Know what's going to happen when I die. Guess what? It's not going to help. They couldn't help. God sent a message. It says, now all the king's wise men came, but they couldn't read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. I'm going to suggest something to you. You know why they couldn't read the writing? Because they didn't recognize Jesus' handwriting. That doesn't look familiar to me. I've never seen anything like that before. And it says, Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. Ooh, what a night in Babylon, huh? I just want to give you a couple of quick applications before we close. For Belshazzar, the handwriting on the wall is a wake-up call. I think that there's a national application 
Any nation can be judged. We all know how some nations are more vulnerable than others. We saw Russia invade Georgia recently, and we see big countries and strong countries invading small countries. And we sometimes look at America and we think that America is not vulnerable. America is not weak. We sometimes think that nothing bad could ever happen to America and that America is immune from the judgment of God. Do you think that that's true? I don't think it's true either. A nation that is sensual, sexual, sacrilegious, and just plain stupid, it's almost like sending out an invitation. Come and judge us. David Jeremiah tells the story that when the Vandals entered Rome to sack it, um, they listened to an orator in the Senate proposing a plan on how to stop the Vandals from invading the land. They were already sitting in the Senate. One historian said that some of the invaders poked the Roman senators to see if they were alive because they were like statues. They were like people who were asleep. They had become neutralized by their decaying society. And even when the barbarians sat in the Senate, they didn't even know they were there. Well, this is how I have proposed that we keep our country safe. There's a personal application. What's God writing on your heart? What would you do different? If you knew that this very night, your world would change. Your life would end. Think about it. If one finger can create such fear, can you imagine when the Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God? If one finger can create that kind of terror and drama, can you imagine what's going to happen when you stand before the living God? There's a poem. At the feast of Belshazzar and a thousand of his lords, while they drink from golden vessels, as the book of truth records, in the night as they reveled in the royal palace hall, they were seized with consternation at the writing on the wall. So our deeds are recorded. There's a hand that's writing now. Sinner, give your heart to Jesus, to his royal mandate bow, for the day is approaching. It must come to one and all when the sinner's consternation will be written on the wall. What's Jesus writing on the wall? There's a prophetic application. We live in a world that's devoted to pleasure. This morning when I was listening to the radio... My friend John Nyondo, who's been at our church, you, you remember him. He's the, the, the prince of Malawi, and he is probably going to be their future president. I heard him say today on the radio that the greatest enemy of Western Christianity is comfort. Comfort. We're too satisfied. We, we're too Satiated. We want entertainment. We want pleasure. We want to satisfy our uncontrolled appetites. We want to eat. We want to drink. 
we have a false sense of security based on a shaky prosperity. But here's what the Bible says, and it does say it. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Gentile powers will one day be destroyed. That's prophecy. There's a spiritual application. What was it that brought down the curtain on Belshazzar? Was it his drunken orgy? Was it his promiscuous sexuality? Was it his perversity? I'm going to suggest to you that the the straw that broke the camel's back was that he took sacred objects and then he used them for perverse purposes and secular purposes. He took what was holy to God and he abused it. Christian, this might come as a shock to you, but you know what the New Testament says about you? That you're a vessel of God. You are God's vessel. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You may not completely understand this, but you belong to God. You are God's vessel. You were saved by God to be used by God. Are you desecrating God's vessel? Are you involved with immorality? Are you corrupting God's vessel with drugs or alcohol? Don't. Don't do it. Don't don't do it. Don't dishonor God. Don't take what God has created, what God has saved, what God has redeemed, what God has forgiven and restored. Don't take yourself that God has created and made born again and dishonor him because you're inviting judgment I want you to remember Belshazzar and do what God is calling you to do don't ignore his word don't forget his promises don't forget the prophecy because When you ignore God's word, you invite a finger on the wall in your heart. We've got so much more to talk about, but we'll talk about that next week. Heavenly Father, we do pray for our country. Lord, we pray that we could experience an awakening that leaders would understand that they're supposed to lead and they're to lead with dignity and with propriety not with sensuality and selfishness not with sexual perversity and not in a sacrilegious way and Lord, we pray for our hearts, Lord. We, we pray that, that if you are writing something on the interior of our own soul and you're, you're pointing out to us that something needs to change and something needs to be different. Lord, we pray that we would heed the warning. And Lord, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice that it would be their deep desire to be used by you. Grace precedes judgment. 
and that the Lord Jesus Christ has come and given Himself and died on a cross and rose from the dead so that we could be pure vessels. And Lord, You've made each and every one of us some honorable, some less honorable. But You've made us all. And You want to use us all. And Lord, for the person who has never made themselves a vessel of honor, for those people who have never accepted the invitation that You've extended to us, to have a right relationship with You, for the person who's lived a life of emptiness and loneliness, masking that emptiness and loneliness, trying to anesthetize their life with drugs and alcohol, forever running, mocking, defying God, Lord, I pray that, that they would turn and that they would fully and finally and forever receive You. Lord, I pray that they'll open up the heart, their heart, Lord, to receive You, to accept forgiveness and experience wholeness and wellness. And if that's you, if you need to have a right relationship with God, I'm going to give you an invitation, and that's to, to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And we're going to stand up in just a moment, and we're going we're to sing a song, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to come down here and pray a prayer to dedicate your life to Jesus. Or if you're a Christian and you've run away from God and you've dishonored God, defiled yourself, and you need to restore and, and be washed and cleansed and forgiven, I'm going to ask you to come down. And you might be saying, well, do you know why do you do that publicly? Well, because when Jesus called people, he called them openly and he called them publicly. And there's something about doing it openly and publicly that solidifies it to your heart. But there's one other thing. You're going to be surrounded by people who are going to be cheering you on. Because when you walk out those doors, the world is going to jeer and they're going to mock. And so you might as well do it in a place where you're going to be accepted and where people understand what it is that you're doing. And so let's stand now. And as we stand, we're going to sing a song. And I'm going to invite you, if you need to receive Christ as your Savior, if you need to rededicate your life because you've wandered off the beaten path and you see the writing on the wall and you want to avert judgment, well, guess what? Who knows? But God might give you another day.